you'll join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the gift of your world. Um, We thank you for the gifts of creation that you have given to us. And we pray that as we um, come together tonight to study your word and understand our place in your world, that you would um, help open our minds and our hearts to understand your word and to receive it. Um, We pray for all of us here tonight that uh, we would be ready to uh, think through these issues and these difficult uh, topics, these complex topics, and that you would help us to grow to a greater understanding of your story uh, and the story of your people. It's in your son's name that we pray all these things. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start by reading Romans 5, um, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free man's gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, As we talk about creation today, this is part of we're roughly following Van Drunen's outline. um, And his first part is really about the two Adams. And so we read Romans 5 um, because to understand who we are. We need to understand what Paul is talking about when he's talking about these uh, two Adams, the death in Adam, the life in Christ. Um, It's not a slip of the pen that Paul does this. He does this again in 1 Corinthians. He picks up the same theme of two Adams. And so tonight, we'll look at creation in particular. We'll look at the first Adam. And the next time we meet on the first Thursday in March, we will talk about Christ um, and finish up this section of his book um, but tonight, we're talking about creation. What does creation tell us about our calling, about our view of culture, um, and our view as, you know, people who inhabit this fallen world? What does it mean to be human now? And so, kind of the big question that Van Drunen addresses, that we'll be addressing, is how do we understand the creation mandate to Adam? Is it still in force? Is the church age to be understood as creation regained? Or are we picking back up with what Adam did? Or is it something else? Uh, To put it another way, do our cultural activities 
return, fulfill, pick back up that mandate? Or do we have something else going on when we look at creation? And so we'll talk at length about the fall of Adam and its effects tonight. Um, And so to start, we're going to talk about Genesis Uh, We're going to talk a lot about Genesis. So if you have a Bible handy or you're using a Bible app, I would just turn to Genesis 1. We're going to have readings from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. And I'm probably going to ask somebody to read them as we go. So uh, we'll really talk about this story that's unfolding in Genesis and and how it's interpreted uh, in the New Testament as well. Um, But we'll go through 1, 2, and 3. But to start, um, one of the things we're going to be talking about, one of the things Reformed people talk about, is the covenant of works. So we'll talk about this. Sometimes it's called the covenant of creation or the covenant of life. Um, If you grew up Presbyterian or you are Presbyterian, uh, the Westminster Standards talk about the covenant of works. This is their language. Um, But our own confessional heritage reflects this understanding as well. The Belgic Confession um, in Article 14, which talks about the fall of man, talks about Adam transgressing the commandment of life, which he had received. And by his sin, he separated himself from God, who was his true life, having corrupted his entire nature. And so this phrase, the commandment of life, is often understood to be one of the first occurrences of this concept, the covenant of works developing. Um, One of the first times it ever appears is the author of the Heidelberg Catechism. He wrote a couple of catechisms before the Heidelberg Catechism. And in his larger catechism, twice, he talks about the covenant of creation, the covenant of law in particular. Um, Now, I say this, introduce the covenant of works, what we'll be talking about. This is controversial. Um, Not everybody would say this is here. And so I want to talk about why that is. So if you have your Bible apps, like I told you to get out, and you search the word covenant, it would not come up until Genesis 6. It doesn't come up in the first few chapters. So why do Reformed people talk about a covenant in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 if the word is not there? Um, First, concepts appear, right, without the word appearing. This is the, uh, I like to call it the quacks like a duck argument. Uh, And so Genesis 2 and 3 especially, but 1, 2, and 3, quack like a duck. Uh, I hope we'll see that as we examine them together this evening. The other part, though, it's not just controversial because we don't see covenant the word. It's controversial because a lot of people try to start by defining covenant as something necessarily gracious. Instead of saying this is a legal arrangement... They will say it has to be a covenant with God has to be gracious. And so this covenant, when we talk about the covenant of works, is not by definition salvific. It's not a covenant of salvation. Um, The principle is one of works or of law. Uh, It is a condition. Blanking on the word. God comes down to us and meets us in the covenant of works, but it's not gracious in the sense of being salvific. So. I'm going to ask somebody, if they would, to read Genesis 1, uh, beginning in verse 27, and just go through verse 31. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sword drills. Uh, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and 
filled the earth with spirit, and had dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its roots. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there, were, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. All right. Thank you, Josh. Um, so we see here the image of God. This is a very big category, especially as we try to understand humanity. What does it mean to be made in God, God's image? And right after we see that they are made in God's image, they are uh, tasked, right? They're called be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. And so we see here, right, everything that God has created, we're talking about all these things that we saw in Genesis 1, all these animals, the earth, the green things, they're given to the man to have dominion over. And so part of being made in God's image is, is this rule. Um, there's a rule, a reign, dominion that is part of the image of God. And Paul elsewhere will talk about being created in righteousness and holiness as part of the image of God. And Van Drunen summarizes his view. He says, a good summary of the image of God thus far, talking about Genesis 1, is something like this. The first Adam was made in the divine image as the royal son of God, commissioned to exercise wise, righteous, and holy dominion over this world. And so to begin with, this is what Adam starts with. He starts with the image of God as dominion. And that is not necessarily the whole story. The story of creation continues. And um, one of the things that I think we need to grasp is that the next thing that we see in Genesis 2 is God resting. He reaches the seventh day. He sits down and rests. And so Van Drunen suggests um, that, in fact... That is also part of God's image. We're supposed to conclude that the next thing that follows uh, evening, morning, sixth day, God resting, is that mankind is also supposed to rest. He's created for something. Um, so one of the things theologians would say, they would say it differently than this, is that we have to think about last things first. Uh, the very theological would say something like, eschatology precedes soteriology. Adam has a goal before he needs to be saved. We have to think about that. We have to keep that in mind as we understand what's going on in this covenant. Um, perhaps you've heard Tim Keller or others describe kind of the progression of the Bible as from the garden to the city, right? The garden is not the final thing. Uh, when we think about this comparison to Revelation 21 in particular, this city it's not an identical picture to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There's differences. There's a city there. There's the heavenly Jerusalem. And so Van Drunen, and I think rightly, argues that when we see God entering his rest here, that is a pattern for us. And one of the big supporting factors for this um, is Hebrews, right? The author to the Hebrews makes this clear um, that the rest that's spoken of there 
is also for us. And so in Hebrews 4, if you want to follow along, I'll pick up in verse 4. Uh, says it this way, and this is one of my favorite quotations, just to back up. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. He doesn't say where, he doesn't say in this place. He says somewhere he said this. Um, Couldn't even remember Genesis 2. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, referring to Psalm 95. Since therefore it, the rest, remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David in Psalm 95, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, referring to the entrance to the land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And as we return thinking about Adam, one of the things we see in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 is that he doesn't enter this rest, right? He doesn't fulfill this part of his image. He doesn't rest like God rests. And why is that? Why is he created to rest and he, he doesn't? What went haywire? Um, well, that's where we get into the story of the Garden of Eden in particular. Um, and so this is another good time for somebody to read. So turning to Genesis 2, uh, if somebody will just read a couple of verses, 15 through 17 of Genesis 2. Sword drill. Okay, Megan. Yes. All right, thank you. So as we think about this, right, we have the seven days of creation wrap up. Um, We begin this kind of second account of creation or, or maybe an elaboration. People differ on how to understand the relationship of these two. But we see kind of a zooming in on Adam and Eve and their role in the garden. Um, And one of the things is that we see man given even more specific and bound tasks. So first off, this doesn't relate to the whole world. This relates to the garden. He's put in the garden to guard and to keep it. And many scholars have noted, uh, some of you are probably familiar with this, some of you maybe not, that the garden is like a temple. It serves a lot of the functions that a temple uh, does same functions. And so some of the ways we see the parallels, right, is that when Adam and Eve sin, they're removed from this special place. There's this place there to guard and to keep. They're kicked out after they sin. Um, God comes down and visits them and speaks with them. His presence is there in the garden in a special way. 
Another way to see this parallel is that when you hear guard and keep in this passage, usually when those two are put together, they refer to the task of a priest. Priests are to guard and keep the temple. And so what we see here is Adam's being given an additional task. He's being given something else on top of the image we've already seen. It's not only that he's being a king, but now he's also being called to be a priest. And our Reformed forefathers would also add in their prophet somewhere along the way. But we'll focus on this priestly call. Um, This priestly task is specific to the garden. He's supposed to protect, right? And it's, it's limited. He's to protect this particular place. And I would make the case that this is also probationary, right? The garden is this limited place, and it's supposed to grow and fold out. Adam is being tested here. And so he's to guard and protect the holy space from intruders that are unclean, that are unholy. We already understand how he failed to do this with the serpent. But one other thing that we we saw in Genesis 2 is that there are these trees, right? And this is another one of those moments where if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Well, these trees symbolize things to us, right? They picture things. They're called the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're symbolic in a way. Meredith Klein, a reformed Old Testament scholar, talked about them as sacramental trees. They're a picture of the potential fates Adam can have in this covenant. They hold it out to Adam. And one of the things uh, being a Hebrew scholar has afforded me is the ability to know that later when we get to Genesis 3 and we're talking about the fall and it says we need to, you know, kick man and woman, woman out of the garden lest they eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, lest they eat of the tree of life. Lest means they never did it. It was not something they had previously done. It never means that. It never means something that had been accomplished and would be accomplished again. It only ever means lest they do something for the first time. And so Adam had not entered into life. He had not entered into rest. That's where we get this idea of the covenant. And so Adam has this probationary task in the garden. He's got these trees picturing for him knowledge of good and evil and life. And he gets to choose. And he fails. He broke the covenant, right? And so what do we need? What is the the remedy for this? Um, And before we get to that, which we'll definitely focus on more next week, we also need to think about what is the ramification for failing this covenant, right? If this is what Adam's called to do, and it is, then what happens when he doesn't do it? What happens to Genesis 1 when he fails in Genesis 2? So we see in Genesis 3, and I'll go ahead and read this part, but I'm going to pick up in verse 17 in particular, um, if you want to follow along. And uh, to the man, God said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now skipping a few verses down to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, See, mankind has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest they reach out their hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent them forth from the garden of Eden to to till the ground from which they were taken. He drove out the humans and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. One of the first things is that that word for guard, to guard Eden, is what Adam was supposed to do. Uh, Van Drunen will connect this to Psalm 8. He has made mankind a little lower than the angels. The angels are being placed to guard the way back to Eden. Mankind is supposed to be above the angels, but he is not, not yet. There are a few things, right? Man is removed from the garden. He loses his priestly task. It's reassigned. But also the man's work. The call that he was given in Genesis 1 is also cursed. His dominion over the ground is cursed. His cultivation, his, his labors are more difficult. They're harder. He's given a death sentence, right? You will return to dust. You will not live. The Belgic Confession notes he lost all his excellent gifts, which he had received from God, and he retained none of them except for small traces, which are enough to make him inexcusable. Adam can no longer take up his task. He can't do this. It's been cursed. And so he can't rule rightly. He can be neither priest nor king in this way. He's not a perfect image bearer. The image is marred. He's failed the test. And at that moment, there's a seismic shift that occurs that we see portrayed for us in Genesis. We've seen it all throughout our Genesis series. In the fall, what we will see in Genesis 4, which we won't read ahead, but what we will see is that cult, worship, priesthood, and culture are ripped apart. We even see it beginning here in the curse. There's the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. As you go through and read about Cain, Cain's lineage is the one that founds metallurgy. They're the ones that found all the cultural activities. But Adam's lineage leads to Noah. There's this cult and culture divide. The two seeds represent culture and calling on the name of the Lord. And so all throughout, we see it again and again, going into Abraham and onwards. There's the faithful remnant and there's the serpent's seed. So something that was wedded in the garden is torn apart. This is also uh, similar to what we see in the New Testament, right? The church is not wedded to the state in the New Testament. It's separate, it's its own institution. 
It's a separate community. Now, it lives among the world. So this is distinct, say, from Augustine's two cities. Augustine's two cities are two cities and you're a member of one or you're a member of the other. But here we see that Adam's seed, the woman's seed, and the serpent's seed live together. We will see in those genealogies, if you go ahead and read, some of the same names recur between Cain's lineage and Seth's lineage. And so we see that all throughout, especially the Old Testament, we heard on Sunday about Abraham making a covenant with a pagan king. They lived among, but separate from, and they called on the name of the Lord. And so this leads us to the big question, right? Do we pick up, now that we're redeemed, Adam's calling, or is, some, or is something else going on here? And I would argue in Adam, right, mankind cannot reach the height for which he was created. And in Christ, Adam's mandate is accomplished already. As the church, we do not assist in accomplishing this probationary task. Christ did that. And so the way that the New Testament especially talks about this is two ages, right? Christ is in the world to come, reigning. We have a down payment on the world to come in the presence of the Spirit. But this world, this old world, is passing. Um, One of the ways, I think, to make this point very stark is to say, this is what we confess creedally, right? We believe in the life of the world to come, not the life of the world that is here. And so when we think about this dominion mandate, when we think about the mandate to rest, it's not something which we accomplish, something which Christ accomplished. That's the argument of the book of Hebrews. It's the argument of Genesis. They're waiting for the seed to come and do the thing that Adam failed to do. And so we do not get an indication that the common things of this world will be transformed in the world to come. Uh, In fact, I would say observation (laughs) tells us the other. Uh, Church buildings are reclaimed by time by forests, by decay. The peaks of Christian cultural activity fall. Kingdoms, nations, buildings, they fall, things change. But God says he will preserve his church, particularly his people. And so part of the reason I read the Belgic Confession um, is to say, right, he's corrupted his entire nature, All of Adam is corrupted. And it goes on, that's Article 14. Article 15 is about how we get all of those things from Adam. Original sin, corruption. We also can't do these things. We also have corrupted nature. And so the way Van Drunen will go on to talk about this, and he kind of closes this chapter out in the same way, is to say what we're looking for is not recreation, but new creation, right? Uh, the new creation gained, not creation regained. So in all of this, what are we supposed to do with our callings? Because we do live in a common world. Some of us here work in and around government. How are we to view this if we're partaking in common kingdoms? Well, they're good. That doesn't make them redemptive or eternal. They contribute to our society here, 
That does not mean that they will contribute to Christ's kingdom in the long run. Our sinfulness is too total. Christ's grace is too total for us to be contributing. The picture of the world to come, the covenant to come, is total, right? It's the Jerusalem from above in Revelation. It's not a city that's built up from below. And one of the things Van Drunen, this is a sneak preview of the next chapter, talks about is that when we see the nations going in, in Revelation, it's an allusion to Isaiah, but it actually removes the part where they're bringing in riches. Talks about the wealth of the nations coming in, but in Isaiah, it's much more expansive about what that exactly is. And in Revelation, it is pared down and it keeps in uh, continuity with the picture of every language, tribe, and tongue coming in. And so, looking at creation and looking at the last things first, I think we have to understand what we do here in this world as good, as common, as what we should do as people who image Christ, but not as ushering in the kingdom. And so with that, we have about 45 minutes for discussion. 